I have great news. You do? I do. What is your great news? And it just came in. Oh, boy. Um, for next week, we have a guest uh-huh. to talk about that great Seventh Circuit opinion. <laughs> she just answered. Which, which Seventh Circuit opinion? The one where uh, Judges Posner and Hamilton are in a bit of a dust-up about judicial notice of internet research conducted by a member of the panel of appellate judges hearing the case. So this is when... When uh, decision when, of a when few you get weeks a case, ago. yeah, when you get so so you get a you get a case in front of you as an appellate judge. Yep. You've got the record from the trial below. Yep. Uh, the record, or the proceeding below. It might not have been a trial. It yeah, might, for exactly. example, simply be a summary judgment. Maybe case. some whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you've got all this, and you're supposed to look at these papers, and you've got these rules which tell you how to review judgments, whether to give a lot of uh, discretion to the, you know, recognize a lot of discretion in the court below or to review things de novo from, again, the record. Right. But maybe you decide, you know what, I wonder really how long it takes to put on protective gear. Uh, I know there was supposed to be evidence about that below, but let's let's get one of those suits and let's just try it here. <laughs> let's kind of ground truth this thing, right? This is Posner. You could that. do that. Or you could, or you, instead you could say, you know, where's, give me, give me, give me some of that Google. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look up. A uh, time to doff or don my protective gear. Yeah, and just you see what I find. See maybe what you find. Maybe there'll be some info. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I'll cite that info and use it as part of the explanation of why I'm persuaded of a particular legal disposition, even though none of the lawyers brought this to my attention in the usual adversary way. Can't wait to talk about this. It's going to be so much fun, and we have a great guest. And she not- just said, "Yeah," <laughs> and it's this is not the only plan though i mean we've we've talked about shows we're going to have in the future that people have been waiting for no but i'm telling you this is I what know. we're doing next I week know. this is great it's arranged for next week this is great and it, and it makes me immediately think of uh it's one of my few jobs on the show christian and it's one of the few <laughs> things that i manage occasionally to do correctly so i like to tout my successes they are few and far between i know oh they're all gosh. minor and therefore seem trivial to you uh, but i can tell you <laughs> oh that this is that, that like the fact that i managed to occasionally do something right <laughs> Is like it really matters to me, and therefore I want to oh share it. Okay, so I, I this is one of those things. Allow me to have a victory today. Your, your deprecation of yourself, Joe, is only exceeded by your constant deprecation of me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I understand what you just said. I think so too. I don't know what that means. Can you exceed in deprecation? This is another one of those. You know, right? You know. Okay, so let's let's move on with things today. Today yes. is the big, I feel like we should have like a, like a whip cracking sound or something like that. Whoosh. The big feedback roundup, Whoosh. you know? Um, so that's what it is. Should we, should we, I'm looking at you. You got this blank, blank look on your face. Like, oh, so. I'm trying no, to think of how we can, like we got the roundup and we got to get some. Yeah. I think what you just sang though, makes people afraid of going, country in, Western going, themes ca- no, or? going canoeing in the Are hills. you wearing boots? No. Are you wearing? Are you wearing? Uh, no, no. Uh, I, I'm barefoot right now. What do they call in, them? This is headquarters. Headquarters is a casual place. It is cash. Um, in fact, I'm cash. wearing my. Uh, I'm wearing the same shirt I wore yesterday, inside out, and I think backwards. Hmm. Um. And I thought it was just hipster fashion. No, no. There's a story there, but we won't go into it. <laughs> um, I'm sure our listeners are grateful for that. No, it's it's it, it, it's nothing unseemly. It's. So you say, uh, it's, shall we proceed? Yeah. This is, let me just say this, that story goes into what it's like to have 17 year olds mm. as children. Yeah. <laughs> um, Although I, ha- I have to say you have only one. Yeah. But I, I so think you said I what it's speak- like to have 17 year olds. You only have a 17 year old. 
I'm going to have another one soon. Because uh, I have a 15-year-old or oh, a near 15-year-old. Right? age so, in, but, Yeah, you know, age each in, of them is individual. Age and... out. Yeah, let's let's just move on, though. And by then, the other one will be 19. So. Yeah, it was it was, it was was my 17-year-old's birthday yesterday. Yay! So I, it was my first day of having a 17-year-old yesterday. Yeah, happy birthday. What a, what a great guy. But boy, does he drive me up the wall sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> does he listen to this podcast? I, does he? No. It won't be news no. to him to hear that, but. Yeah, n- nobody who nobody who knows and, and, and likes me in a social setting listens to this podcast. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I do listen to it so I can verify the accuracy of what you just said. Um, okay, so let's go let's on go to on. My... So we've got a um, uh, first thing. So before we get to the feedback, I wanted to follow up. I promised the listeners some follow up. Now, so I asked a few uh, a couple of weeks ago for we were very close. We had like 96 likes on Facebook. Oh, we, yeah. We have more like interaction on Twitter generally. And yep. I think more maybe more of our listeners would think to to uh, follow us there. Uh, and I mentioned reasons why you might want to do that were oral argument on Twitter and oral argument on Facebook and oral oral argument podcast at gmail.com by email. That's where most of our feedback for today has come from. True. Um, emails mostly, but, uh, we were close to the 100 like threshold on Facebook at which they promised I would get some new analytics or something. And oh, really there was an actual representation. Yeah, but maybe it was a while ago. I don't know. I mean, it was, it, you know, it's like you're near your next whatever. Mm, Your next milestone. And so if you get, yeah, your next milestone, I don't forget the word they use. And so I said, listeners, you know, we only need a few of you. If you haven't liked us, maybe a couple of you can come in and throw us over the edge there. And and uh, did that happen? And they did. The listeners responded in force. I mean, you know, we have a lot of listeners to the show. For me, even if 1% come in and and like us, that's like, wow, you know, that's people of, there was a call to action and there was a response. And and we got, I I don't know, maybe 20 new likes out of it, something like that. So we're well over the threshold. And and we were last week and I I looked at it and... um, so can I, I guess what can I guess can I guess what what you got what we got? You can guess based on what I actually said last episode. Would I know you? I'm going to guess. Okay, go ahead. I I, I, I mean based on what you said last. You didn't last explain ep- last week. I what didn't happens. explain, but I said basically what? Nothing. Nothing <laughs> that I could tell. <laughs> uh, well, and what I was going to suggest was that you get an electronic badge, um, and it's a gullibility badge for believing <laughs> that anything would happen. Yeah. Once you passed 100. Yeah. Well, I can tell you. So, listeners, here's the kind of analytics that we that we get, which is why we love to hear from you, because otherwise you're kind of a faceless mass. Right. So on our yeah. on our uh, the 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 company that hosts our the files for our podcast, the ones you actually download, um, we can see because we pay a little bit more the state and sometimes the region where our downloads come from hmm. and the country. And so we can see, for example, that we have a, a, a large number of international downloads, meaning downloads from outside the United States, yeah, which, which is, is fantastic, cool. that our downloads around the country are spread out, um, that we, while we do get some, uh, we're based in Georgia. And when we first started doing the podcast, that's where most of our listeners came from, probably. That was our biggest state. Now That's no longer true. No, now it's no longer true. Now it seems to reflect more general population trends. So California and New York are, are more than Georgia. Texas, right. we get a, a fair number. And those uh, are highly populous states. And North Dakota, we get almost none. But that's <laughs> an ongoing sewer point. Uh, so we get that kind of information. Right. From Facebook, we can tell, like we get a little graph showing like when people liked us or, oh. or, or even when they muted us. But it, of course, it doesn't tell us who. We, right. we You know, it's not creepy in that way. No. Uh, Facebook probably has all that information. I'm not saying well, Facebook's sure. not creepy. Right. Goodness knows. See last episode, right? Yeah, really. But... um. 
but we don't see that kind of stuff. But we can see like how many people shared us and how many people clicked through and how many likes we got. So we see a little bit of that. We we get that kind of information. Neat. And that's kind of, you know, I guess cool to look at. So uh, and, and maybe as we do more interactive things with the listeners like we did for that serial podcast last year. Where we called we'll, some folks. Yeah, where we yeah. said, hey, if you want to be on the show, um, you know, get in touch with us and yeah. we'll call you and, right. and we'll do this kind of call out show. So we, you know, that kind of stuff will be cool to do. And maybe if we know a little bit more about our listeners and where they come from, that'll be uh, easier to accomplish. So anyway, yeah. that's I wish I had more exciting news listeners to share yeah. with you about like some fireworks or explosions. But, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't really tell that anything much had changed. Mm. But maybe maybe subtly we're getting a little bit more information about when people click through and i can tell you what i do get from facebook is lots of offers to pay money to boost our posts i bet boost page they say right, right. And, and and listeners can you guess how often i spring for that <laughs> none yeah, yeah. we uh, all of our likes are, are what they call organic likes so these these are called analytics or analytics oh boy all right it's just like artisanal and artisanal 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 yeah those are even worse mispronunciations than you would give to a last name analytics oh my god this is a family show let's keep going (laughs) that's why i want to pronounce the word correctly what we need are little uh little emojis that i can kind of stick in (laughs) to the show which because listeners can't see your face so they don't know when you're because they need to know when you're glaring at me Mm -hmm. when you're rolling your eyes when you look like you've been hit in the stomach yeah when you're smiling you know those listeners don't see that and I think that's part of the fun of doing this show is for me to say things and look over and see the look on your face is <laughs> always entertaining. <laughs> it's fun for us. Mm-hmm. It's fun for us. That's true. Okay. So that was the, that was the, the, the first thing. Um, and we have, we, we do have a little bit of a topic today too, but let's, let's go through the feedback and let's see where this ends up, where this ends up going. Okay. What's um, the topic? It was the, 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 the Kentucky clerk. You oh, yeah, to talk yeah, about, yeah, right? right, right. So, we'll, so we might have time for that. We might not though. We might not. Because we, we have a lot of uh, feedback. Yeah. And, and we're going to try to to group some of this. So yeah. um, first bit of feedback is from listener Ali. Um, Ali who's or It could be Ali. It's A-L-I. It's not A-S-L-I? Oh, boy. Maybe I mistyped it? I have notes. So you want to look at... Why don't you... You pull up the Slack. Yes. And I will And I will just look at my notes. Because... Now, the other thing is this may have automatically... I think you're right. Because you know how it automatically corrects typing now, even on macOS? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it corrects. I think it. it's I think it is listener A S L I and I don't know how that that could be pronounced Ali or Ali or Osley or Asley or Um I think yeah, I would say Osley. Okay. Um oh. so uh and listener Osley is a law student, um uh currently a law student, uh has not in Georgia, but has worked in Atlanta. Apparently. And has become more interested recently in georgia law Hmm. and you know and and as a listener of this show and and wants to know are there any you know are we do we have any particular regional interests either because we're here or otherwise and uh or you know is there anything about georgia law which would be interesting to talk about uh and mention this particular dispute um between the state of georgia and this guy malamud carl malamud malamud Okay, so am I the one mispronouncing? I think it corrected that one too. I'm, I'm the one who's going to mispronounce names today. But um, uh, yeah, so you, you, what is this dispute, Joe? Oh, the dispute is about uh, the, well, it's a copyright suit filed uh, by the state of Georgia against uh, this guy and the project. He's been doing uh, 
a range of projects, all of which are about making uh, the law more accessible to people. So, uh, and making the outputs of governments more accessible to people. So, for example, right. one thing they do, just before I get to the particular dispute, and to talk about this man and, and the things that he's done, so there there's lots of video footage that has been shot by uh, federal government workers in the context of their federal jobs. And okay. the Copyright Act, quite explicitly in Section 105 of the Copyright Act, so 17 U.S.C. 105, says that such materials uh, that would otherwise be copyrightable uh, are not copyrighted and not copyrightable. It, they are in the public domain the moment they are created because mm -hmm. they're created by federal workers in the context of their federal employment. And he takes these things, which might be, for example, on a bunch of CDs and therefore not very accessible to people, and he puts them on YouTube. Okay. Right? That's a way to make things that people have a right to see more easy to see. Um, and so it's a public domain spirited enterprise that he's right. engaged in. And a lot of that has Open to do... Open up law and government using the tools of the internet. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so one of the one of the things that people uh, have a right to know is is the law, not just federal law, but the law in the state where they live. And uh, the Copyright Act is more complicated in that context because unlike the provision I just mentioned, Section 105, which makes it clear that federal output is not copyrighted under the federal statute, um, it doesn't say anything about state government output or local mm -hmm. government output. Mm -hmm. uh, so... The conventional understanding is, of course, that stuff remains copyrightable yeah, uh, and copyrighted in the appropriate circumstances uh, that the act spells out. Well, this lawsuit is about the Georgia Code, the Code of Georgia State Statutes. Now, it, the, co the code, by the way, is just the name that we give to. So, so the legislature passes bills, governor signs them or you know, the chief executive signs them and they become law. And, and, and if we. You know, and those are law. They're enforceable, right? But of we, we go through this further step of kind of organizing them so they can right. be easily found and researched. And so the laws as they're passed are put into a code book right. uh, under the appropriate chapter. It's kind of like, you know, um, especially at a time when all the research was by hand and in books, it was easier to locate stuff if similar statutes are grouped together. And right? so, so conventional has that approach become that now when lawmakers write those new laws – they write them by referencing the code itself. Like, we mean to add a portion to the code, and here is where we would add it. Right. Uh, so uh, there are some lower court cases. Uh, I don't think there is a U.S. Supreme Court case on the question whether, uh, I'm not a copyright scholar, and therefore my memory might be faulty on this, but I don't think there's a U.S. Supreme Court case on the question whether uh, there can be a valid federal copyright interest in a state statute as such, right? The words of the state statute. Um, I think there's lower court cases that say, yeah, there, there can't be a copyright in that in the, because people have a right to know what the law is that governs them. And you, so you can't inhibit their ability to get that stuff. To interpret uh, it that way would be like a due process violation. There would be some constitutional re – is it yeah. – there some would be a constitutional reason to interpret the statute in a particular way is probably how they do it, right? Now, the other yeah. way you could do it is say, well, of course there's a copyright, but it can't ever be infringed. Uh, because, because it's always fair use? Because it's always fair use, okay. right? So there's the different analytical pathways, you bet. Fine. Um, 
The reason that the Georgia case is a little more interesting than that is because the way the state of Georgia decided to go about making its statutes in the code form more publicly available was by contracting with a legal database company that people might have heard of, LexisNexis, and said, okay, will you publish this for us as a way for people to have our code? And, uh, and yes, we will do that. And here's one of the terms of the contract. Um, we're going to make annotations, which we do as a legal publishing company. That's one of the services we do is annotate codes and, and have sell that as a value add. Can right? you give an example of an annotation? What, what, what kind of thing do they do when they so annotate? In the annotations, what, what, they, what annotations typically focus on is how courts have interpreted the statute in question. Right. So it's a gathering together of the cases that have interpreted it and then summarizing those cases. So it isn't just an annotation isn't simply a list of cases or right. a copy of the case. It's a summary condensed comment on the case. Right. So it's something someone actually had to take the time to think up and write down. Right. And know to attach to this statute. So if the law said something like, you know, it's, uh, it shall be criminal and punishable by X if you uh, kill somebody with an abandoned and malignant heart, as right. some of the old phrases of murder are used, then, then you might, under that, you know, after that statutory text, there might be annotation, colon, and then a discussion of cases interpreting that phrase and how they've come out. Right. Here right? were the facts that suggested abandoned and malignant heart. Right. And you could have a series okay. of cases that I just wanted to clear that up. And what that and what that clarification does is it makes very clear that this takes time and money and effort to to come up with annotations. Right. This is uh, an activity that you know is probably is not something that you could consistently get people to volunteer to do uh, on as comprehensive a basis as you might want to. Right. So if you took a Wikipedia strategy to doing this, for example, it might not be quite as thorough or as uh, uh, up to date as you would like it to be. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Interesting question. Right. Would that work? Um, uh, Given the tools we now have, the annotation tradition dates back well into the well over 100 years i mean that that these legal publishers have been around and raises a super interesting kind of legal theory point about what the law is you know if the annotation True. is always there with the statute how do courts treat those annotations right and then how do they play into how the law is interpreted in the future and i think and i think uh, malamud's position would be a lot stronger if courts routinely cited annotations as authoritative and discussed them as authoritative but in fact they don't uh, right. At least not not that uh, I'm aware of. But do they? But do here they, or generally? But do lawyers typically look at the annotations and then gain guidance from that, and then the argument happens with that annotation in the background? In which case, it's a silent authority. It, it's yeah. not authoritative in the sense that it controls. I don't think but lawyers do. I mean, my, yeah, I my my sense is that lawyers don't take guidance from them. It's that lawyers use them as finding aids. As a jumping off, I mean, that's how I always use it. It's a yeah. jumping off point for doing your research, but you may find more. And, yeah, and you know. it helps you find the things you're looking for a little faster, uh, and you, you can be maybe a little more confident that you haven't overlooked an important source, yeah. since there are so many. Um, so anyway, the contract that Georgia has with LexisNexis, as I understand it, it again, says, fine, Lexis will publish this, uh, but they publish it as an, as a, an annotated code. Right. Uh, and that they... Um, use the state copyright in that annotated code to exclude others from copying it and publishing it in competition with so them. So this is, so let me, uh, yeah, we've got to move quickly here, but the, the, the official publication of its laws by the state of Georgia is through this other company. It doesn't matter what it is. 
And the only version they publish is the annotated one? That's my understanding, that there is not a, a, the state of Georgia does not have an unannotated, just a straight up textual version of the code. And you're pretty sure about, but this is the kind, we could be wrong about this, we I guess. We could be. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And it makes a difference because, of course, the, the case is all about the fact that Malamud has copied the annotated code and made it publicly available. And that looks like a straight up violation of the Copyright Act. Uh, but he claims. He may have a fair use defense. Right. Um, and that's. And you mentioned before we talked that he claimed that it was like, it would be almost too hard to copy just the law part, just the statutory part without the annotations. Did he make that claim? Yes, I think. Well, it's either a claim he made or that one could make in this context. Let's. Uh, you know, yes, okay. I don't think he's answered the complaint, for example. So okay. I don't know what his official position is. But yeah, you could take the position that that um look uh it it would be that that the people have a right to know what the georgia code says if the only way georgia is making that available is in this annotated form they can't shift on to me the laborious process of taking away all the annotations to get to the code right it'd be kind of like if they if in the pre-mass publication era you know you had the code of hammurabi and it was and they said yeah it's here anybody can look at it but because we're worried about it being destroyed, we're going to put it in this uh, maybe military base or something like that. And um, it's not that we have any uh, problem with people coming and looking at the code, but we can't let you on the military base because of other military things, right? And right. In other words, you know, the, the reason you can't see it has nothing to do with like our not wanting you to see it. It has to do with uh, the fact that we have to keep it in a place where seeing it is is impossible for other reasons. Right. And that won't, the answer to that is, Make a copy if you can, and put it somewhere where people can see it. Right, and and in and the so the wise, uh, I my hope is that the outcome of this dispute will be uh, that he is not held liable for copyright infringement, and uh, that uh, it is made convenient for the Georgia Code in unannotated form mm-hmm. to be made publicly available on the web free of charge sure um we've got listener jared and listener mike both writing about um kind of going to law school issues mm-hmm. uh listener jared writing about li- the listen to my full point episode <laughs> which i i don't really, I, I, I'm, I'm i don't remember what it's about but i love the title well yeah you because you just know that it's about you're telling me, me to be quiet and listen yeah. um <laughs> And, and this is about law school and the use of rankings. So just really quickly, he's, he writes, law right now is such a buyer's market that I think if an applicant is willing to start their career in a number of s- different cities, they should strongly consider uh, their school's position in the respective market rather than its national rank. The quandary, one way to frame the quandary would be, um, I get into um, the school that this year was ranked 10th in U.S. News and ranked 30 in U.S. News. But number 10 school is in a city where it's the third best one in that city. Yeah. And number 30 is one where it's the best one in that city. And region maybe too. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Um, which one should I go to? Right. And, and his very astute observation is it's act, that's actually a tough question to answer. Right. And it is. I agree. It yeah. Is a tough it, question because to it depends on what you want to do. Right. You know, if you know that you, that your, your, your ambition is to work at the top law firm in, you know, regional big city. Right. And, and, and you're and it's U.S. News number 30 law school, but it's right. the best one in that city. Right. And, you know, for sure you want to be in that city that that could very easily be the better choice for you. It could easily be. And you want to look at like 
who works at this law firm or these law firms that you're interested in, or if it's a, even if it's a public interest thing, right. who do they tend to hire? Who's there? You know, will, will you get more exposure and interaction with these people if you are in that city at that law school, either because they're alums or because they have programs right. or, uh, or could you do that? Could you work there over the summer, even if you were at this other more, you know, higher nationally ranked uh, law right. school? So I agree. This is a tough question. Yep. And, and so thanks for the point, Jared. I think that's something for uh, definitely for law students to keep in mind, yep. right? That it's another way that U.S. News does not provide an easy answer. No. Um, uh, <laughs> it gives these, you more things to think about. It does. And, and, and we've, as we've said, like, you know, students need a way to get some kind of sorting. They need a sorting mechanism, yeah. right? Uh, we've criticized U.S. News using others' criticisms, really, rather than our own. But yeah. we've kind of built on that and uh, as not being a particularly good sorting mechanism. But that... In some sense, it doesn't matter. And any, and I, I just don't want us to leave any conversation about U.S. news without my saying, as I usually say in every conversation about it, um, because because as you say, people need a tool. I just want, I want to make sure, make sure that you are using it and that it is not using you. Yeah, like be, you need to be in charge of your own thinking on on you. And this is just more raw material for a person's thinking. Yeah, good point. And then listener Mike follows up we may have mentioned as listener michael last time but it's listener mike uh he uh is a returning student he's been a student before and is and is thinking of going to law school i don't think he's completely decided on it yet and and so he was writing about our uh, an answer we'd given him pre- previously about like what to do to prepare for law school mm-hmm. whether yep. you know, lsat prep or and i think one of the things we emphasized when we responded to him last time, and I don't remember what show it was, maybe the viewer mail episode, was uh, writing, right? This is yes. for students like, you know, if you can become a good, succinct, clear writer, uh, that will help you with your thinking too. But also like just being a good writer is is huge in, in law school. Uh, and he'd be, been concerned and he was concerned about not being in a particularly, I don't know, academic frame of mind, but he's been out of it for a little while. And so he wants to make sure that he's ready for academic studies again. Yeah. And he's kind of, you know, he's exactly our kind of listener, right? He's got that seeker personality. He's curious about things. So he'll, yeah. he'll do great. Mike, you're going to do great. He's thinking about philosophy programs too. Yeah. Like what, he's going to be awesome. And he has some other things in this email too, which are, which are great. Um, but uh, so he writes, he's going to do great. He is also going to have some moments of frustration in law school because sure. not everyone who is at law school is going to be approaching things from his point of view. You know, that's, in a sense, that's a very trivial thing to say, because that's true of virtually everyone in law school, uh, that none of them are at a place where all of their colleagues are approaching things from the point of view. Fine. Um, but but he's going to feel it harder than some people do. Sure. That 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 some of his classmates, he's going to feel like, uh, why are you being such a tool? <laughs> um, and <laughs> right. why are you ha- why do you have such a small point of view or a small field of vision? Because there will be people there who are essentially buying a credential. Right. And every academic thing there has to do is just a barrier to getting the credential that they're yeah. paying and, for. And right? he might find that that frustrating. And you, that's another um, thing to look at. In schools. Guess. I mean, when you when you visit schools, right. you know, are there a lot of are you surrounded by a lot of seekers and curious people? Are you surrounded right. by a lot of credential seekers? And right. And and people who initially want a credential can be persuaded that curiosity is the best way to make the most of that credential. So there's a lot of Indeed. change that happens in law school. Yeah. Um, but he, he has this really interesting quote or a great quote that references, as, as you mentioned earlier, Kant, uh, uh, in our conversation. But he says, actually, I'm mostly just a curious person who's interested in the crooked timber of humanity and how we can make a straighter world with nothing straight for reference. How cool. Referencing uh, Kant's quote, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
boy, that's if you want to describe our listeners, wouldn't you say these are people who are like looking for <laughs> looking for uh, um, straight lines in a in a crooked world? Yeah, and and even when they know there there probably aren't any to be had or to be made. Right. Looking looking even for but the trying lines. anyway. Look, looking for the splines. <laughs> um. Uh, he, uh, Mike also has some experience and ideas on, on this thing. And I just wanted to put a marker here about this. We, we mentioned many shows ago that we were going to talk more about this issue that, um, uh, about determinism in the mm. criminal justice system. Right. That came up with our conversation with Josh Lee about, with Josh the, Lee, about capital punishment. He's written about it and, yep. and we want to talk more about it. We still are trying to find the right guest. Yeah. had some invitations out. We're, we're looking for that. We even had someone volunteer over Twitter to talk about. We've got a lot of you out there. <laughs> who have PhDs and, and some of you in philosophy who want to talk, you know, it's like we, we need to find the right guest for that. And, yeah. and we want to talk more about it. And these and, questions about criminal, um, the criminal laws reliance on a, a certain approach to the question of moral responsibility and determinism and free will. These are actually very deep questions. Yeah. And not just in criminal law. I think it's true of tort law as well, but it seems most pressing when, when you're going to take away someone's liberty and put them in a little box and for, for yes. years at a time, yes. right? I mean, but, but it informs our understanding of the law generally. In fact, true there's enough. one way I could characterize this project I'm working on, right? It is about like, how do we know what the law is? Yep. You know, uh, it's, you're led and, you know, to preview another show we might do at, at a certain point, when you are trying to figure out why people are disagreeing about things and you've gotten there because you've noticed that people are disagreeing about the, what the law is and you're trying to figure out well who's right and who's wrong and you say well what you know how do i know what's right and wrong and how do i why are people disagreeing in the first place then you're led to the question that um uh, people in jurisprudence or legal philosophy often ask which is this what is law question mm-hmm. that makes people's eyes roll yep <laughs> uh, but once you understand that that question really is about like how you know what are people doing when they do law like what is happening when people do law? If I know what is happening, then I can kind of have an account of why people are disagreeing, and then I might be able to participate better. And so, there's a very practical edge to it. There um, is. So, anyway, we'll come, and that question bears this question of free will bears directly on that. Yep. A uh, little segue here because we also got a uh, uh, listener, Dean, who I don't think is an actual Dean. Okay. Okay. But but I think I think his name is Dean. Okay. Uh, if he's an actual dean, he's Dean Dean, which is kind of cool. Which would be awesome, just like um, Dean Maine, Dean of Maine. Right. Which unfortunately didn't happen. Didn't happen. Yeah. Um, maybe one day. Dean be Maine. great if Dean's, if Dean's last name were also Dean, but spelled differently, because then it would be Dean Dean Dean. Yeah. Be totally awesome. Yeah. I, I felt like Dean Maine, Dean of Maine is the best we could have hoped for. So, <laughs> But Professor Maine, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you to be Dean at some point. At some point. Uh, of Maine. Yeah, correct. Dean Maine, Dean oh, of Maine. Dean right. of like uh, Georgia. That wouldn't. It's not going to do it. it would, no, no, no. We need so Dean Georgia. Stay where Georgia. you are, Professor Maine. Um, uh, so, uh, listener Dean asks basically. I think feel like we've talked about this on a, on a much earlier episode, he, and this is specifically addressed to me. Although you were also in a postgraduate program, so you could think about this mm-hmm. as well. He says, "Has my uh, PhD? I have a PhD in math, and he asks whether it's been useful." even though it's not directly related either to the research I'm doing or to the study of law. And I've talked about the connection between law and math on earlier episodes. I don't remember which ones they were, but um, maybe we can, if I don't link them up this time, because I'm short on time, maybe another time. Um, he, but he also asked, has it been useful in, in particular, like just in my thinking, but also instrumentally, is it useful in getting jobs or et cetera? Let me just say, I'm going to do this one really quickly because I know we've talked about it before. We may come back to this again, the idea of what is useful and other kinds of academic studies in thinking about law. Uh, it certainly has been very useful to my evolving conception of what law is and for my academic project, even if it's not direct. 
All right. I'll bracket that there. Um, instrumentally, I think it was definitely useful for getting into law school. Um, I think it um, was, you know, if you look at someone's resume and they have a PhD in law, philosophy or whatever else, you think, well, that's a person who might add something to our academic community. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think it was definitely a plus in, in my applications. It was a plus in getting jobs. For example, my first year summer job was at the um, White House Council on Environmental Quality, which is an office, basically the environmental office in the White House that kind of coordinates um, environmental impact statements and other things. And I, mean, I was very interested in environmental law, still am. But um, the reason I, – I think the chief reason I got that job is because the, uh, there was a, a guy there who was a PhD who was in charge of producing an academically oriented report on emerging environmental issues and, and wanted someone who had that kind of mm. approach, right? And so there aren't that many 1L – summer volunteers who are interested in doing that who also have that you know interest in the environment plus a phd in an academically oriented area you know so anyway i think all that helped me get that job i think it helped me get my clerkship i think it helped me get my uh, academic job so um you know it's another credential that shows that you are academically inclined that you've done research before you know that sort of thing so i would say that instrumentally cool you got nothing else to say you look yeah you, I'm trying to translate listeners Joe's uh, the way that he's moving his eyes. Okay, here's what here's what I'll add to what you said. Okay. Well, you don't need to, but you can. I want to. Okay. Um, like your uh, PhD in mathematics, um, my master's degree, although in psychology, uh, involved a, a lot of graduate level uh, mathematical coursework. It happened to be coursework in statistics. Right. And in experimental design. Mm -hmm. And I think I have gotten a good bit of benefit out of that along the way in various ways, uh, much weaker versions of the benefits you derived, um, but but similar in kind, weaker in degree. Maybe more directly um, applicable, though, because I didn't do any stats work. No, it could be that uh, someone who had a PhD in a field that was less obviously directly relevant to lots of what goes on in law, right? A PhD in art history, um, a PhD in, um, you know, name some other field that seems further. You're having trouble because there's so many, there's so many things that uh, could be plugged into law, right? Like, like yeah, you think is, like geography or archaeology and you know, I would say those are, you could do stuff with those. exactly. That's what I mean. That's why it's um, hard to think of unrelated yeah, but, examples, but, right? So there could be, it could be, why do I bring, so it could be that if there were different PhD sitting here right now, they might give us a different answer than you and I just gave. Right. I'm right. not a PhD. I have a master's degree. Yeah. Um, but, but so, so it's the answer we just gave is not the only one you could give because there are so many different fields of knowledge and, and study. Right. Yeah. Your mileage may vary. Okay. Next, next uh, bit of feedback, and and here we got another uh, couple that kind of go together. Uh, cool. Listener Matthew, uh, who's a senior in college and and interested in law school, um, asks a, asks a very basic but profound question. Um, you know, having listened to some of our shows, where we've kind of casually mentioned this case Lochner, mm. um, famous case Lochner, and and substantive due process, and basically asks, well, you know, what's wrong with substantive due process and Lochner? So, 
it's a great question. Yeah, what is wrong with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, we because it, it and 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 kind of raises the issue that Lochner is often used as a talisman of evil, right? So if you can associate something with Lochner, right? And and there's a whole movement which has been in the news recently about uh, or been in the uh, discuss uh, uh, common uh, common what's the right word a general discussion recently has emerged from the law reviews about what about the rehabilitation of Lochner as a case. Right. But setting that to one side, right? So it's been used as if you can associate something with Lochner. Um, right. Like the chief justice did in the uh, in his uh, dissent in Obergefell. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's to say that it's bad. Right. And, all right. And so uh, listener Matthew wants to know, well, what's bad about it? Why is this so bad? We should talk more about this. Um, we, we but should. we have talked about it before, at least given, I think, a good introduction to the death of Lochner and the emergence of the idea of deference uh, by courts and and theories of deference in Episode 30 of the show, uh, A Filled Milk Cast, which is one of three episodes where you and I talked about our favorite cases. Yes. Right? Uh, I, mine was uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, <laughs> again, just to be clear, that was not my favorite result. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is, this is my, my favorite case because of uh, Harlan's descent. Uh, and, and, and you had, you couldn't decide, so we had to do two. Right. For you, Joe, because you're a special snowflake. I am a special snowflake. And and, and uh, the two that we did were Erie and, in this case, uh, um, Caroline Products, which in a, in a fundamental way represents the death of the Lochner Doctrine, right? I mean, it's one of the cases yeah. that, that buried it. Um, yep. So I, start there. Listener Matthew and others interesting. What is this substantive due process? What's the problem with Lochner? I think you and I weren't talking about that. We couldn't remember exactly how basic we got there and where we started. But start there. But thanks for the for the tip, because I do think this is a place to go again. Don't you? I do. I mean, an episode about the the rise and fall and maybe future rise again of substantive due process of various varieties could be a really fun thing to talk about. Yeah. This is and 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 this is a segue to listener Adam's feedback, which gets into like, well, what is substantive due process? It is one of those doctrines that gives courts the flexibility to decide whether things are wise or not. Right. Not just whether the it complies textually with the law, but within what's been passed. Is it wise within a certain range of considerations? Right. And the concern is that gives a lot of political flexibility to courts. And in fact, courts become super legislatures, basically making political decisions, uh, and therefore it's bad. And we have lots of complicated thoughts about that that we've shared before. But listener Adam writes in because he connects us with something else that I've said on the show about the death penalty. Like one of the problems with, for me, with having a death penalty in the United States administered as we want to administer it is that it distorts everything else. It sucks up lots of resources. (laughs) It results in lots of strange doctrinal choices that we wouldn't reach if we didn't have this kind of punishment. Yep. Um, So that's, that's just one of my problems with the death penalty that I think is, it's not just a waste of time, um, but it's also, it distorts the law in, in bad ways. And, um, he, and listener Adam says, you know what, does this, does, if the death penalty does that, does the Supreme Court in general not do that? That's kind of what he asked. Like, does the Supreme Court distort the law and our thinking about the law in the same way that you said the death penalty does? And, and, and here's what he, and, and what he mentions is what he talks about here is the fact that the Supreme Court often makes these very political decisions, kind of where the, the law seems to run out or where they assert that the law has kind of run out and they're interpreting the law within, 
you know, a range where there seem to be different acceptable legal answers and answering on political grounds, right? And we've talked about this on the show before, lots of thoughts about it. I'm not going to revisit everything right now. But he has this really interesting uh, line in his email to us. Um, Think how capably we could discuss the Supreme Court without discussing doctrine. And to discuss doctrine when analyzing the Supreme Court seems to hide the real action. And here again, for listeners like uh, maybe like listener Matthew, when we say doctrine, we mean, uh, or uh, I think listener Adam means um, the kind of accepted principles which you can find in earlier cases, interpreting statutes or the Constitution or even just earlier common law cases. So if the case says, you know, this, the plaintiff here should lose because in general, uh, plaintiffs who are, uh, 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 who inflict physical injuries should be responsible when they do so negligently, right? So the idea that you are responsible for injuries you inflict negligently is a bit of doctrine which would come out of that case and that doctrine gets more and more complicated as you get other cases but the doctrine is what's like the law in the case that people often say right and so much of the supreme court's reasoning take the obergefell gay marriage case doesn't seem to flow directly from doctrine at least the doctrine doesn't provide a full answer and that's kind of listener adam's point here if we when we talk about what the supreme court is doing and why it decides what it decides, doctrine seems to play very little role. And so he says, what would law school be like without constitutional law? Would it make us better legal thinkers and prevent cynicism about the predominance of politics? Or would it limit our understanding of law? This focusing on SCOTUS cases also misleads students about what law is because the Supreme Court is not a part of most lawyers' professional experience. So the kind of reasoning that you would engage in in thinking about Supreme Court cases is not the kind of reasoning that you would necessarily engage in in a more constrained analysis in the lower courts. What do you think, Joe? Um, I think it's completely Looney Tunes. (laughs) The suggestion that we not talk about constitutional law? Or, Or the separate suggestion that we not talk about the Supreme Court? Yeah. I mean, it's a testament to a even otherwise very smart people's understanding of the Supreme Court's. And to be this is listener Adams, like curious, like musing about this, right? I understand. Yeah. You're not saying he's Looney Tunes. No, I know listener Adam. He's no. far from it. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. Um, and, and even Looney Tunes ideas are very important to consider and talk about because you have all kinds of interesting insights like in Adams insights. Mm-hmm. But let me get back to the Looney Tunes uh, thing being contemplated. Um, so the Supreme Court, uh, just just for the stuff I'm m- maybe more familiar with than, than virtually any of our listeners. So I focus in my teaching and research on, among other things, patent law. And the Supreme Court has become much more active in patent law uh, since the mid-90s. Uh, so we're approaching 20 years of the Supreme Court having been uh, much more active than it was in the 20 or 30 years before that. And that is the span of my legal career, that where I've seen this activity. And so not focusing on the Supreme Court's work in patent law would be catastrophic to a lawyer who was trying to advise clients on how to work effectively within the patent laws of the United States as we understand and construe and know them, uh, because the Supreme Court's been critical uh, in that. Uh, And in ways that, by the way, I think have been highly salutary, unlike a lot of patent law academics who think the less the Supreme Court says in patent law, the better. Two two questions. I for am you. not. I'm a person who thinks the reverse. I think they their influence has been really very helpful and useful. Yes. Two questions for you. One, do you have an example of the Supreme Court's activity in an area of the law that we think should exist? 
<laughs> okay, so you don't have to answer that. Number two, um, what if we take from Adam's point not that not that we ignore Supreme Court opinions for learning what the law is or what the constraint is likely to be, but that it's not useful for for learning the how of the law, right? So if you want to learn how we make legal arguments. Maybe we should study lower courts and district courts. Yeah, I don't think that's true either. I mean, for example, um, if what you're doing is looking at how the court interprets uh, complicated statutes, um, I think the courts of appeals are constantly confronted with statutes that are complicated that, uh, as to which there is no authoritative case directly on point. Um, and the courts of appeals are peopled by judges who have to pay a great deal of attention to the Supreme Court's output. So to talk effectively to the Court of Appeals, you need to think effectively about what the Court of Appeals judges know there to be out there as authority from the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, ju- it's, just, a, it's just a wholly untenable uh, uh, notion of what, uh, what a legal education might be like. Well, I, all right. So I can't possibly, we can't possibly do this justice on this show. This will be another show too, or we'll get back to this. Uh, I but mean, am I not making important you're, observations? You're make, yes, yes, you are. I think you're you know, the one doing the eye rolling. I, no, today. I'm not eye rolling at all. I, I just, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, of Judge Posner's observation about how the Supreme Court is not a real court, right? Cause it chooses its own cases and, and, and for other, for other reasons. And yeah, although I, I don't necessarily agree with the that. The interesting but, word in that sentence is the word real and I, not the word court. I, I, yeah. Um, it's <laughs> see, we're trying to, we're trying you to, get, but to you don't get anywhere. You don't get anywhere trying it. to educate people to be lawyers by, by, I, by failing to pay attention to this very significant part of what U S law is. Right. But it's, it's, and the U S law is right. about this institution among many other things. Yeah. I mean, in, in legal education, should it be treated as a court or as a source of of law, which is unlike other courts. I mean, that's part of, that could be one way of looking at this question. I mean, for me, you know what I think. I mean, I think the chief thing that law does is to push irreducible political decisions down to different kinds of institutions. And that sometimes district courts make those decisions, sometimes appellate courts, sometimes the Supreme Court, sometimes administrative agencies. And a lot of getting law right is deciding where those kinds of decisions are best made. And and, uh, that's kind of my outlook on it. So I'm trying to I think we got to put this in abeyance for now, other than to say that I thought it was a really interesting thought experiment to think about, you know, what would law school look like without conversation about the Supreme Court? And yeah, I'm, I agree that it's interesting. And the reason that I think it's so interesting is because of how terrible it would look. <laughs> I and, and what that teaches me about about how important it is that it be there. Um, yeah, I'm not as convinced it would be it would be different. I don't I'm not it's not clear to me it would be so impoverished, though. Uh, even if you are a so so certainly if you're convinced that all of your students are are going to be um you know um basically trial court lawyers right then then you can make a pragmatic I'm not making that kind of pragmatic argument yeah. that it's but not that argument too would also be that that one would also be wrong it, but for maybe different reasons yes um, for, for okay. quite different reasons but it would be equally wrong uh, right but even for <laughs> even if you're training students more generally in the law or even to be policymakers. I can see leaving out the Supreme Court. It, it's interesting. All right. I'm not going to go into it anymore aye because aye you're, aye. you keep rolling your eyes. And, it's just, and, <laughs> I thought it was fascinating. It is fascinating. Uh, listener Asher. Listener Asher, who's a, uh, um, has been a correspondent multiple times and, and, and always interesting and fascinating. Uh, this time on our show with Kareem Creighton about, um, basically election um, mm-hmm. laws, Voting Rights Act, and and discriminatory voting. Um, 
And, and he writes, you know, so we would raise this issue of what to do. And Kareem actually um, tweeted at us about how this this thing with this Kentucky um, mm. um, clerk raises this kind of issue. What happens when people elect somebody for racist reasons? Right. Or and I'm not saying that's the case in Kentucky. I'm not even saying she was elected for like anti-gay reasons. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm, it right. raises this kind of issue. We've got this official who we think has these motivations. But anyway, but when, it takes virtually no imagination at all to imagine in today's political environment, someone being elected for anti-gay reasons. Right. Right. And, and, and then, you know, the law seems to be oriented toward finding actions by officials that are discriminatory, right? And you usually look for discriminatory purpose. Sometimes it's enough to find a big discriminatory effect. There's lots of doctrine about this, but, um, but what happens when people go behind the voter voting booth and they do so because they are convinced this is my, this is my guy, you know, usually, or this is my, this is my woman who will enact my, my preferences and my preferences are racist and they'll do so in a way which is not going to be easily detectable. Right. Because we insist on identifying a discriminatory motive or purpose, and that can be really hard to do, right? So is there any doctrine? We kind of mused about this question, so Kareem tweets about it. So uh, Asher says, uh, you know, that law has always been about um, racially discriminatory laws and not voting itself, right? I mean, and and even um, he says on this, we should read uh, Christopher Elmendorf's article in the Pennsylvania Law Review, Making Sense of Section 2 of Biased Voting on Constitutional Elections and Common Law Statutes. Um do you do you think that people should read this article that yeah i mean i think it's he, fascinating he pointed us to i i, I think it's fascinating um so we'll link to that article in the show notes mm-hmm. um and and he suggests that we have chris on the show he did he says he says i'm i in particular might find chris interesting and uh which is amusing little known thing but yes as this email came in i was staying at chris's house <laughs> <laughs> Chris is one of my best friends. Uh, I would love to have him on the show. He may not be. Uh, I've kind of hinted at him a few times. I don't, he, Chris is not a frequent podcast listener. I think he'd be fantastic, but it may not be the kind of thing that's for him. But his writing is fascinating, and he's a very good friend of mine. And we, you so know, you heartily agree that I've people re- should read this, yeah, because there's a connection with what I do too. So his article on on making sense of Section Two, this is the uh, Voting Rights Act stuff, right? Is uh, makes use of kind of the state action doctrine, which I've written about. We have many conversations about this in the past. Mm. Uh, Chris is super fascinating. Uh, Everybody should should read his stuff. The other thing that listener Asher uh, writes about, though, is um, this idea that there's a – how do we deal with this problem of the fact that there have been no – I think it was in Mississippi and maybe this is not right, but there have never been any uh, blacks elected to statewide office, at least since a certain time, maybe after Reconstruction. I don't know. But that kind of problem of of underrepresentation in statewide office of racial groups. And and he's skeptical that we can actually do much about this uh, absent a non-proportional voting scheme, right? So he says, it's always been a mystery to me that we correct for the effects of our non-proportional scheme when it produces some racial underrepresentation, but not when it it inevitably – even without gerrymandering, produces partisan disproportionality due to geographic concentration of liberal voters, not when it produces dispropor- uh, disproportionalities in religious representation, not when it does so in urban areas with white voters in urban areas, not when there's gender bias, etc. So so why uh, the concern about this? And uh, can we actually do much about this underrepresentation? To which I say, we're going to have to have another show about voting rights. And this is going to be a continued issue. We will. Uh, but two... Boy, that proportional scheme sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, the parliamentary, uh, par- parliamentarian, parliament, parliamentary system. A parliamentary approach, yeah. Yeah. Parliamentarian is Although, where we're going to use Robert's rules all the time. One as we has do to on the say show. There, there, are, there are many approaches to uh, a, a parliamentary system 
so the the British system uh, is a parliamentary system that still looks a lot more like ours in having first past the post, two dominant parties, right. this sort of thing. Uh, so, so the proportional representation idea that you would have seats in the parliament allocated by the proportion of voters who chose that as their top choice. Right. You might even then say, you might even give voters a choice to say, well, what's your second choice? Right. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, you know, this can get very complicated very quickly, but the, to just say parliament is, that's, you're naming a very diverse category of stuff. Yeah, there, there are even many, under the word yes, parliament. There are many, many design decisions. So we should just stick with proportional to describe a family of design uh, voting design decisions right. that would basically enable even um, candidates with somewhat weak support, but significant right. to have a f- representation in the body that makes laws. Yes. And inevitably, um, well, hope, you know, one hope would be is if people do have very pluralistic, diverse preferences, that there would be maybe lots of these, yeah. you know, smaller parties right. and that they would form coalitions. Yep. And these coalitions would survive so long as the interests are aligned and they would fall apart when they're not. And, you yep. know, would this be too chaotic? Uh, are there other advantages to a range of experience? Stability? Too. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so um, the, you know, the Israeli uh, parliament, the German parliament, the relative rates of stability of various coalitions. I mean, these came these, up, this came up a little bit in our episode. It's a very with, rich topic, actually. W- yeah, it came up a little bit in our episode with Lori Ringhand, which I forget the title of. Um, yeah. we, th- this issue came up. I don't remember how deeply we went into it, but uh, an entire show on like proportional representation of what it means to be a voter and what power a voter has could be really cool. Very cool. Um, so if you're interested in that, you know, as always, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com to let us know what you're interested in more and less of. Mm. Don't you think? Yeah. Let's let people vote on this. Let's let's have our shows in proportion to. Listener Xander. Listener Xander on the death penalty. Basically, he's saying, you know, so we have this conversation about the death penalty uh, with Josh Lee. Yep. Ma- mentioned on other shows as well. And his concern is, while while he very much likes the show and was went out of his way to say that, he felt like it was a little bit of an anti-death penalty echo chamber, right? And and how about hearing from the other side? And he gives some examples of what the other side would say to some of the things that that uh, came up on our show. Um, first of all, doubting my kind of empirical prediction that the death penalty's support would continue to erode. And and like I've got nothing. I mean, mine is just an intuition. Yeah. about what's likely to happen and 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 you know and time de- will tell yeah i i'm less confident in it than i was in the um uh in gay rights um and part of that is about demographics right mm-hmm. there was a demographic trend which was just unstoppable right. with gay rights whereas with the death penalty i think again there's a there's a slight demographic trend um but it's also the case that a particularly heinous murder or series of murders or a rising crime rate in a particular area can kind of destabilize that trajectory, right? And make people more yeah. pro-death penalty, you know, particularly yeah, because, heinous crime will do Because there's a salience, um, there's sort of an availability heuristic that's that people use to f- sort their way through this issue. And if, right. and if what's available in your mind is a, is a series of extremely heinous crimes that made the news and were sensationalized precisely because right. media outlets know how... how drawn people can be to these things uh in a perverse sort of way uh you know if that's what's on people's minds then yeah their views about the appropriateness of the death penalty might might be pushed around quite a bit yeah um the the availability heuristic that was working in the demographic trend on 
uh, lesbian and gay equality, I think, is that as more people get to know more lesbian and gay people, what's available in their mind is, yeah, my, you know, my, my friend Fred is a pretty nice guy, and my, my workmate Judy is pretty nice too. And right. They don't seem to have horns or tails, <laughs> so I think I might have been misled by somebody at some point uh, about what they're like, and so maybe it's all okay. And there's a, there's <laughs> I think a, that's what's available. There's this increasingly mind. intense feedback loop too, there because as 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 you get to know uh, a, a straight person who gets to know more gay people becomes accepting of it, then the gay people who are still in the closet observe that acceptance right. and will come, and out, come out, so they more, come yeah. out in increasing numbers, and so it's yeah. only an accelerating thing. So, so this this uh, what I would view as a virtuous uh, circle. Um, or a cycle, uh, th- there really is no corresponding thing for murderers. No. Well, the, the one engine that I think pushes the needle in the, in the direction of abolition is better science and better understanding of innocent people who have been killed. Um, it really ought to... I mean, and we'll maybe Xander will think we're we're echo chambering again. Uh, but I really do think it, it it if the number of people who have been exonerated after having spent quite a few years in prison, whether they were waiting on death row or not, is actually not material to this point. The number of people who have been exonerated for serious crimes, if that doesn't give you pause about the wisdom of this ultimate punishment of the state taking a person's life on behalf of the state itself, right? Um, I don't really understand what your thinking is. Well, right? so, if that doesn't give you pause, yeah. I don't quite get where you're coming from, honestly. Well, he, so he, you know, he mentions that like many of the problems that people cite with the death penalty are problems with the criminal justice system generally. Issues of race. We'll get back to that in a second with another bit of feedback. Um, cruelty, confinement, all these, and that's all true. It just there's this, you know, it's the irreversibility of the death penalty that has that you point to as um, as a particularly problematic. Um, and, and so he he says at the end of this email that like, and that is something that makes the death penalty different. That I, is yeah. about the death penalty as such. I agree. Right, that it's a death penalty. I agree. Right. So we really are talking and not about a bunch of other issues mm-hmm. when we make the observation about it's the fact that you can't undo it. The, right. Yes. And the other issue he raises, I think, has a similar kind of response, but but one that I don't disagree with him, that it'd be great to have people on who disagree and we have a real oral argument about this issue. True. I, think, I think that'd be fine True. if we can find the right person, the right timing and everything, you know, that sort of thing. It'd be great. Uh, the last thing he mentions is if it's more, it, it basically he's saying, if one believes that the death penalty is morally impermissible in all cases or in almost all cases that, that count, um, then you really should confront the hard cases and not the cases of your, um, your Willinghams and others who were clearly wrong, you know, pretty clearly now wrongly uh, right. killed uh, or have been exonerated. So a serial killer with no mitigating circumstances, for example, like right. that, you, you need to face up to the fact that you are not going to uh, exact retribution on that on that person um and my one comment on this other than the moral argument is a very good one to have and we're going to put that in abeyance and i take i take xander's comment uh as an important one that that we really should confront that um i'll just note that scalia tried to do precisely this in concurrence when blackman dissented began dissenting from the death penalty saying you cherry-picked a case that where this person is sympathetic but how about this case involving this awful rape and murder right and he describes it a little bit the person he described there turned out to have been innocent based on DNA evidence. Right. I think it was DNA evidence and exonerated. Right. 
So, yeah, we can always confront the the so-called easy cases, but it, it turns out the easiest case Justice Scalia could find uh, was not just a hard case, but was an easy case the other way if if <laughs> had we had the right kind of, of yeah. evidence. So that gives me a lot. The, the pragmatics Again, of at the very me least a lot of pause. ought to give you pause. <laughs> ought to give right. you pause. Yeah. If you're if you're if you are generally a proponent of this form of punishment, mm-hmm. um, sh- surely even the strongest proponent of this form of punishment doesn't believe it should be visited on people who didn't commit the crime that you think should be punished right. that way. But as a but, con- but if that turns out to be a huge problem, like a very difficult thing to achieve, let's make sure it's never visited on anyone who didn't do this kind right. of crime. Well, then you really have to take that seriously. But as a conceptual matter, I take Xander's point, because if we eliminate the death penalty and replace it with life in prison, either we're with or without parole, and and we're still going to make mistakes. People. And we might actually be less likely to find them because there'll be less energy into saving someone's life. Fair point. And the kind of, you know, the cruelty of putting an innocent person in prison. I mean, that's it's like a crime of kidnapping someone and Agreed. putting them where they can't have contact with their loved ones anymore. Can't be, this is a terrible thing to do. Yes. Right. And um, so, you know, the death is not totally different in terms of a penalty, but it is different. And, and I think there is there is more to say there. And there is um, more to say on, on, on what looks to be Xander's uh, side of the, of the fence about this. Yep. Um, but anyway, uh, I thought great bit of feedback. Uh, listener Brian. Yes. You ready? Um, yeah. says, look, I've always used, um, uh, so he's a teacher, mm-hmm. not in law, but, mm-hmm. uh, he's always used, uh, Garner's American usage in, in his class, but he's only recently realized that, that Garner's model for improving legal prose could, could actually help his students who are not in, in the law, hmm. um, the task of interpreting text being kind of the shared goal there. Um, anyway, he was wondering whose writing we particularly enjoyed. Uh, what makes, in other words, what is it? And I, he didn't say precisely, but, but what is it? he says, as Joe said, that makes Kennedy's reading, as you said, insufferable to read. I do not agree with that. Justice Kennedy, you're welcome on the show. I think you're fantastic. <laughs> and we can talk about why Joe was wrong on the show. Um, okay. Uh, and Kagan. And, and if you don't think that I would also welcome him on this show, you're crazy. Oh, I, I would, of course, welcome him on the show. Of course, but you did say that his writing is insufferable. I do not enjoy reading his opinions in constitutional rights cases. Mm-hmm. I think his opinions in patent cases have been excellent. Okay. Okay. So that's a little so bone. So take that. Yeah. Okay. Smoke it. But what makes it, what makes, uh, some legal prose insufferable and for example, Kagan so good. And so he ends up by saying, look, I, I always thought Scalia was so famous uh, a justice because of kind of the cocky conclusions and originalism and attitude. But now I think his style has as much to do with his fame as his jurisprudence and ends by asking whether I've seen any good movies lately. <laughs> um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. We and should have started with this one. We could have done the whole episode about it. We course. could have done that with virtually any of these. Emails. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, I we're feel the, like we didn't the, we do an episode about legal writing. The embarrassment Boy, my memory is terrible. Yeah, it's I just terrible. No, I don't think we've had a. I feel like we've talked about it, but um, it, it would be great to to talk just about the isolating the writing part of it and the rhetoric. So, of what is it again? Opinions. He asks, what 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 is, is it? it that makes Kennedy? You know, if you had to say, you know, you said it's insufferable. You you have this opinion about the writing. Yeah. What is it that is? Is there a reason for those opinions? Is, is it an, an aesthetic that, reaction that I could describe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are common threads in the writing that I enjoy reading. Um, and, and there are even things that I have tried to do in my own writing. Mm-hmm. Because I 
feel like I've witnessed the uh, success of those styles as a reader. Me too. I, I felt them work, and therefore I felt if I could do something similar, someone else might feel that about what I wrote. <laughs> I feel like I've labored to run away from that and to and intentionally to make my writing insufferable. <laughs> so I feel like Let me know ha- if you accomplish your mission. Um, I, well, yeah, I think I have. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it is hard to it is a challenge to articulate because as as you've just suggested. I mean, part of this is an aesthetic response and the, the old saying about there being no arguing with taste. Right. I mean, there's truth to that. Uh, and so I would say that how do you deconstruct your own aesthetic sensibility? It's hard to do. I mean, I I would say one of the great things about a few Kagan opinions that I've read is the, the clarity with which she identifies the issue and the clarity with which she identifies the arguments. Yes. And it's not that like, I, I don't. It's it's not that I like her writing because it makes um, hard questions appear easy. I think that is actually Justice Scalia's style, right? Yes. I think it is. There are difficult questions, and through, I think, excellent rhetoric. Normally, you know, setting aside some some issues that you and I have ha- had and have discussed, I think on the show, and I discussed on Dahlia's show with right. some of that writing at the end of the last term. Yes, and um, that seems to have increased in frequency as as. The years have gone yeah. by. The, the the intemperance, the vituperativeness. There's a fine line um, between that and and just a feisty opinion, where the rhetoric lulls you into seeing what's easy about a hard problem, which can be a good if so long yeah. as you keep your wits about you and you realize there's another side. Right, can be a great way to kind of you know it's the experience that a lot of law students have of coming in believing one thing. They read a majority opinion. Boy, that's persuasive. And they read Scalia's dissent there. Boy, that's persuasive too. Right. Who am I? <laughs> right. Exactly. What do I think? And I but think the, that's great. But the making hard things seem easy, it can slip into demagoguery and yeah. that's dangerous. For- and my favorite writers are the ones who can illuminate why a question is hard. Yeah. And then can clearly say, I'm coming down on this side of a hard question. Yep. And that's, to me, that that's what I like. And I think, and I think Justice Kagan is someone who, I think she shows that she can do that. Um, I think some of the Chief Justice's opinions similarly have done that. I think Justice Breyer is someone who he's good at showing the complexity, but but not both clearly and concisely in the same way that I mean. We, I think Justice Kagan. My impression is it's it's not just the clarity; it's the clarity married with the concision. Yeah. Right. She's succinct. The, the clarity yeah. per page is right. like sh- approaching infinity <laughs> because there are so few pages. I, yeah, so right. is, she manages to, in a very small space, say a great deal and say it quite clearly. The only thing I disagree That's about is- That's amazing. Yeah. She, she's infinitely far from infinity though. So, so <laughs> just, just to make a technical correction. Okay. But, um, my, my apologies. <laughs> Boy, that PhD really does come in handy. <laughs> I also disagree about Breyer, but I feel like we should have another episode um, in the future. I, I think a writing episode where we're maybe even like a, either with a linguist or someone who's a... Can I mention, yes. um, can, but just before we depart this point, um, yeah. and to talk about an author who's um, who's not a justice of the Supreme Court, as vanishingly few authors are. Um, in the major works in legal theory class that mm-hmm. Lori Ringhand and I do. Uh, the, the book we started with this year uh, was Danielle Allen's book called Our Declaration, mm-hmm. which is a, 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 an extended meditation on the Declaration of Independence. Um, 
And wow, was that beautifully written for me. I mean, if talking about my aesthetic response, right? Right. Uh, this is a book I would hand to anyone and say, if you want to know what I think is beautiful writing, yeah. if you read this book, you will know my answer to that question. Hmm. So you, another me, person might read it and think, oh my, this is awful. Right. right. But I was, I just felt you're the so frequently that yeah. it was sublime. You're an ideal reader for this particular. For this book. Yeah. By this author. Yeah. I, I think blew me for away. me, beautiful writers are uh, Robert Cover. Um, Nomos and Narrative. Yeah. And Violence in the Word in particular is just a, you know, for me, a, it's a gorgeously presented idea and a beautiful idea. And among modern writers, I really like, you know. Um, my friend Jed Purdy, I think, is a beautiful writer. He is. He writes very beautifully yeah. and clearly, yeah. and powerfully. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Well, if I could get him and Chris on the show at the same time, we'd we'd have lightning in a bottle. Ooh. Yeah, I, I've been in a room with them at the same time. It's super fun. Okay, so let's uh, let's keep going here. Um, good movies that'll have to wait too. Okay, uh, <laughs> just just a couple more, and these are a little quicker. Um, uh, listener Trenton. Having listened to our serial episode, asks, uh, have we listened to this other podcast, which follows up on it, Undisclosed, The State versus uh, Adnan Sayed? And the answer is, from both of us, no, we have not listened to this. However, my mom keeps asking me whether we've listened to this show. She she's even asked devoted, me whether I'd listened to it. I know. She's, she's just fascinated by this, um, which is, I think, part of her overall fascination with the law and and wishing that she had maybe done law earlier in life. Mm. Um, uh, and. I think she would have been awesome at it, but, uh, uh, and, and it still is awesome at it. I mean, she's really enjoying learning more about law and policy, um, in her retirement, which I think is great. Uh, cool. So I can't speak in, I can't speak to the show. I think it's Nor maybe produced I. by her, uh, by Adnan's lawyers or people associated with his defense. Maybe not. I don't even know, but, um, I've, there was an innocence project at UVA that got involved in this case, right? Maybe yeah. they're part of it too. I, th- I don't know. Yeah. I um, don't know either. But I've heard uh, interesting things from others. I think it's certainly prevent- presented from, unlike Serial, uh, this is an Adnan friendly podcast, which may be totally merit. I, I don't know. I haven't listened right. to it. So, uh, but, um, but I did want to mention that Trenton sent this. And so if you're an oral argument listener, as Trenton is, you might also be interested in, the, in that podcast. Totally possible. Uh, listener Jay. Um, and this is an, another quick one, not because it doesn't raise a very complicated issue, but because, uh, well, we'll see. He, he, uh, is, is writing about our, uh, the contaminated evidence episode, I think mm, mainly, but the, also Garrett. this general issue. Yeah, exactly. About, uh, innocent, convic- convicting the innocent and says, like, there seems to be in this and in other conversations we've had about criminal law and, and maybe other issues, um, an issue that we really haven't talked about, which seems to run through this, which might be big and that's race. Like, you know, the, the extent to which um, uh, convictions of the innocent fall disproportionately or even because of mm. the racial makeup of the various actors within the system. Mm. Uh, I guess two things. I just, as I was saying that, thought of something else. I think in our show, and I don't know if it was the sacrifice episode or the one before or after that where we talked about innocent convictions and we were talking about um, uh, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos's piece on statistics. And oh, yeah. we, you remember all this? And we were kind of yep. modeling like how many people would be convicted right. in a system and what were we willing to tolerate? Yep. And I think I mentioned that blog post I'd done a long time ago about how, you know, race and in generally in groups and out groups may affect our tolerance for these kinds of errors. So we have talked about that uh, that that issue before, um, but not I think systematically focused on, on on race. And so my the comment I was prepared to make about this is stay tuned because we are trying to get 
uh, a guest to talk. Um, if not, well, we'll see what we're going to talk about with this guest. But the idea of race uh, and its effect on um, uh, on errors in the criminal justice system and race as it applies to other areas of the law that you might not even have thought of before. Um, we've certainly have done it with election law with uh, Kareem Creighton, but but in other areas, I think is 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 fascinating and really important. You know, we talked, and with, we will talk about it in future shows. We talked with the uh, is it is it Seth Stoughton the. Is he yeah. the professor at South Carolina? South Carolina about police. about policing. Yeah, and, policing. And this is the um, Guardian. Uh, this is the Guardian, the Guardian versus, versus Warrior, warrior culture. And, yeah. I mean, in, of course, there we could have talked more, I think, about. Uh, yeah, and, and actually, maybe maybe that was, I, I don't have the whole email in front of me. He may have even mentioned that one, Jay right. did. But he's, that, of course, yeah. Yeah, because that's an area where clearly in, in uh, news broadcasts over the last uh, two years, that's that has been a, an enormous focus. Right. Uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement that's arisen as a consequence. Right. And, um, so, yeah, these are these are issues that definitely are worth talking about. And it certainly came up on that show because we talked about Ferguson. We talked about um, the historical slave patrols um, yeah. from what. Yeah, so there were it came up. But I think even on that show, we said, boy, we got to have Seth back to talk yeah. more deeply about these. Like we could have a whole show just about these slave patrols and what so, they and emerged. So I want to do more with this. I do and, too. And, um, and it's part of it's finding the right guests. I, one thing I would like to say too, um, and this is, you know, maybe we're recommending another podcast. So you, you mentioned one that the, the listener had asked about for, in terms of serial. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this podcast called about race. Have you ever listened to this? No, I have not. So, um, uh, Baratunde Thurston is the person whose involvement with it is what caught my eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've, I've been enjoying this podcast enormously. Again, it's called about race. And I think the full title of it is something like conversations about conversations about race. Yeah. Um, and Baratunde Thurston is, does a bunch of comedy stuff, but he's, I think he's just a very astute, uh, sort of social observer and social commentator. And, um, and Raquel Cepeda is one of the hosts of it, and another guy whose name I'm blanking on right now, Tanner or something or other. Anyway, I just found I find it to be very interesting and provocative, and I feel like I'm learning something. Um, and partly it, partly I feel like I benefit from it because I feel like a good thing to do these days for many of us when it comes to questions of race and racism is to do less talking and more listening. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, it's helping me with that. It's giving me something to listen to rather than talk, uh, that I feel like really illuminates things for me right. and really helps me learn things. And yeah. I feel good about that. Well, that's so part of the, listening to it. That's part of the motivation to get a guest on yeah. to talk rather than just you and I Correct. pontificate about is to hear, race, is to hear is, more from yeah. someone who has some really good, solid content yeah. to provide. Yeah. And you know, we so about race, people yeah. might want to check that out. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I, one, one thing I like about Jay's email is that, um, it is an attempt to kind of keep us honest about this. Hey, you know, you talked all about this, but you missed a huge piece. Right. And I, I don't think he's suggesting we totally missed it. I, I'd have yeah. to listen back to whether it came up. Maybe it didn't in that episode. But we certainly but, could have talked about it more on a number of the episodes we've sure. done and we can in the future talk about it more too. And will listener Josh, I should I say co-host Josh. <laughs> That's right. One yeah. time, well, he was yeah, a this, guest. Is, this is Josh Leaf, um, uh, who was, has been on with us before and a and a long time and loyal listener, uh, is is writing about the um, episode that we did with uh, Frank Pasquale. Great episode about uh, drones. And I love among this other email. things. Among this, other things, this email was great. And 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 can I just summarize by saying that um, what he 
argues for so this is the issue of driverless cars right and what is the should there be a manual override right. for driverless cars this is the idea of uh um i keep saying this the idea of boy I, I hate my own quirks you know what i mean don't you hate your own quirks i certainly hate your quirks i hate I'm your quirks. <laughs> I hate, I, yeah i i just i just cut right to it and hate you <laughs> I feel like I'm saving time. <laughs> Goodness knows we need to save time. Okay, so quickly, though, uh, the issue with driverless cars was, well, what if they're driverless? Should a human being be able to take the wheel? And maybe w- what if that? What if we knew that by letting humans take the wheel, they might actually do things which are less safe and more people right. might be injured by allowing for manual override? Should there still be one? So you might say, oh, the utilitarian argument would be no manual overrides because right. manual overrides is just going to produce more deaths. And Josh, I think, very cleverly says, wait a minute, what if manual override has a lot to do with whether people accept there being driverless cars at all? So the public won't be as accepting of the accidents that occur, inevitably occur, if there's no manual override. Right. Where, so if there's a manual override and someone's driven over a cliff by a driverless car, at least people can say, well, they, they screwed up because they, they didn't should take have control. Taken, right. it, and if that, and if being less accepting of the accidents that will inevitably occur um, means people say we need to not have driverless cars. Right. Right. Well, that might reduce overall utility, right? Because the whole predicate of these driverless cars is they're producing fewer accidents. So if the way to get to the equilibrium of fewer accidents is to not get to the greatest reduction in accidents, which might be no manual overrides, right? but a substantial reduction in accidents, which is manual override so that people will accept the thing that reduces lots of accidents so my, it's a very interesting question it, actually. it is it is and, it's and a matter it's, of social sort of social incentives i think it's um whether to me the less interesting question is what the utilitarian position is than what what we should do mm-hmm. because the, well the, the reason it's less interesting and more interesting at the same time is it reveals that the idea of utilitarianism i think is somewhat of an empty concept without a corresponding idea of what utilities you're measuring and how to aggregate them mm-hmm. right so what if it's just you know we're going to add up everybody's preferences we're going to assume that we can give each preference some kind of number and we're going to add it up and we're going to choose the uh we're going to choose the option that maximizes that aggregate number like you got to figure out how to do that is that really what you want to do but there are many ways of aggregate aggregating preferences and there are many ways of recognizing what preferences should count right yep. and so uh do we the basic question is do we favor a world in which there are fewer automobile deaths um, or not, right? And, and if you do favor one with fewer automobile deaths, then is it the world in which, in, in which there is a manual override and so there are more deaths than there would be in a world in which there was no manual override but people accepted it, but we can't get to that because people wouldn't accept it? Like, you know, this is, it's a complicated question. Right. So um, what I like about the question is it be, is the the way that it highlights things like, you know, first best, second best, third best, that mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the best that you can achieve isn't the first best, it's the second best. That's a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. And and, and it can nevertheless be in a great improvement over current, over the status quo. Right. Right. Um, but and still, lawyers have to think about stuff like that all the time. Yeah. I Still, though, the right answer is no manual override. <laughs> <laughs> and Darcy agrees, punctuating it with a collar shake. Last bit of feedback, listener Spencer. So listener Spencer is writing about our, um, and this was a comment on Facebook, wasn't it? It was. This was, uh, is writing about our show with uh, uh, Michelle Meyer. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the last episode. Also yeah. a great, wonderful episode. episode. Boy, we've been lucky with guests. Haven't we really we? have. Uh, and and I'm just going to take one quote from here and see if this captures the spirit of it. You tell me if I've captured it wrong, Joe. But he, but he writes the research face. So this is the show about Facebook experimenting on its users. Yes, right by skewing the news feed to right. favor either positive or negative posts and then measuring the effects. And the question is, is this, is this a human subject experiment? Should they've gotten, uh, should, should there have been, uh, should this have been cleared by an institutional review board? How do we feel about corporations experimenting on their users? Don't they always experiment on their users because they're offering different kinds of products and seeing how people respond to those products. So, you know, so we talked all about this last time. Spencer says the research Facebook f- performed scared me, not because Facebook might want to produce a good, which was what the customer did not want. But because Facebook might discover that the customer wanted something which the customer should not want. Yeah, you tease me by calling me Adam Smith and, oh, you know, markets can do this. Yeah, like, so, it's, it, so, it's so, totally so wrong, Mark, but yeah. What's wrong? No, my calling you Adam Smith. I mean, it's, a, it's a running joke in the show, even though it's – I'm trying to smear you. It's like being a, a um, right. Right, ne- neoliberal, right? And Which I am – not and adam smith is not either so it's like it's just a joke it's right. just a joke the multi-layer yeah. joke yeah i don't know how to what's the best way to, to please pe- proceed governor to peel it <laughs> uh yeah um it, m- markets are good at getting people more of what they want and spencer's right to say well what if it turns out that the things people want are along some other measurement of value, very bad. So, for example... Uh, and, and, and therefore, you saying, well, I don't really want them to get better at delivering this thing that's really bad. You, for, uh, the example I would point to is, um, you know, junk food, which the, the, the science of which, right, how do, how do I get this perfect combination of, you know, salt and fat and sugar mm-hmm. so that, you know, human beings just cannot resist, yeah. right? Uh, as you, all the heaving five thousand pound carcasses of former humans are strewing the ro- the roadside because <laughs> the, like this food is so well designed, people yeah. cannot stop eating it. Right? Yeah, that would be the ultimate in delivering people what they wanted. That was a catastrophe. Do you know the ultimate in delivering people what they want is the entertainment and infinite jest. The in- the entertainment what the inter- the entertainment and in the infinite and in- in infinite jest by David Foster Wallace. I mean, this is the idea that there's this thing okay. that you watch or experience. It doesn't really matter. I mean, but that hits you and hits your brain in just the right way, so that you are completely absorbed by it. Yeah, and you are catatonic, right? You know, right. so yeah, it's possible to design this entertainment in such a way that you want for you want nothing else. It's the ultimate drug, right? So you take yeah. drugs, and it's the you know, it's, it's reckon the brain as having is a, is a kind of programming that wants things right. And this can be hacked in a way, right? Yeah. So you, it's whether it's tickling the, the sweets or other pleasure centers of the brain, other yeah. reward centers. And so I think markets are really good at delivering things that people want. Uh, and I think they're, they're useless at assessing whether or not it's good that those are the things people want. Well, well, I don't, hmm. That's how. Say, that's my top of the head reaction to what he said. My top of the head reaction is that markets don't just respond to um, uh, endogenous preferences, right? Yeah, the, the prefer- yes. Th- but it's another sh- way to frame the problem. Yeah, they the shape endogeneity preferences. of preferences. Exactly, yeah. they shape preferences. So people decide what they want based on what's available. They change their view of the good based on the 
basket of goods and services out in the right. economy and what other people are saying and consuming. Yeah. There's a very dynamic process going on. And, 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 and that's, I think, Spencer's issue, right? If you get really good at not at finding out what is the maximum pleasure that we can derive, well, I'm going to, you know, the more we deliver it, the more this people want and the different, you know, and, and they'll want things that they wouldn't have wanted ex ante. And so there's more to it than just consumer preference. And to me, this is the core of it. Okay. It's, it's enabling people to choose what to want in the future. Do you know what I mean? I mean, so we may have, we have these preferences about our own preference structures. <laughs> yes, do you know, we do. like, I know that if I started taking heroin, right, that, that heroin is the thing that I would want most. And that the future me who's addicted to heroin would want nothing but it probably, yeah. right? And that, that would satisfy my preferences. That, I le- don't want to have that preference structure. Yeah, the, the lesson of history is that that's what your life would be like because right. that seems to be the life of heroin addicts. And if you start to tickle the outrage centers in my brain by feeding me stories where I get outraged about things, right? And you, you start to kind of activate the uh, the lizard brain in me who reacts tribally, right? And, you know, for me, that would be somewhat liberally, probably, you know, uh, in the new sense of the word liberally, right? You show me some conservative outrage. And for other people, it may be the other side of the yeah. fence or, or more extreme sides of the fence, right? So you do that a little bit and suddenly I start consuming more and more of that. And then that starts to make me feel good in, in greater measure than it did before I started going down that road, right? So this is the way that the um, array of informational products that we consume, kind of like the entertainment, right? Can eventually shape the kinds of things that we want in the future. And that that can be a bad thing. Um, and, and, and your use of the, and my point is your use of the words good and bad in these sentences show that the val, the, the, the senses and sources of value, right. For good and for bad, um, are found in places other than the market, right. Whether or not they are also found in the market, but they but, are certainly found in places right. other than the market. But very critically, yes, but very critically. To, to, to my argument here, and I think not exactly what Spencer said, I'm not asserting that, uh, or at least I don't think that, um, that we should disrupt this like uh, uh, delivery of goods to, pre- to uh, the reward centers of the brain because a benevolent dictator n- can tell us what we should want. Or there's, <laughs> Nor or am there's, I. Or there's some like moral philosophical idea of what people should want. And therefore, even if people want something, we deny it because we have a, a moral theory about what they should be wanting. It's right. not that. No. It's that individuals themselves... <laughs> may have preferences about what they want, right? Yes. It's this idea about, you know, heroin, forgoing heroin, that kind of thing, right? It's that uh, we know that people will be shaped in their future preference structures by what they have. Yeah, we're, okay. we're, we're 100% agreed that, that uh, you know, that we're not looking for value dictators here. Right, and that's the, you know, your objection to this kind of thing might be, like, you know, who is, who is uh, Michael Bloomberg to tell me, Michael, right? <laughs> My brain is not working. Who's Bloomberg to tell me that I shouldn't want a bunch of sugary sodas? Yeah. Right? Uh, but the truth is that the, 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 the society that we all build together shapes our future preferences. That's my main point. And that you might have a preference about how that happens because yeah. you want to be Ulysses and you do want to tie yourself to the mast and you want to live in a society that makes it easier to do that. Yes. Without getting rope burn and that kind of stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's all the feedback that we have. Can you believe it? So right up to this moment, that's all we have. <laughs> right we'll get to, more. I, I hope that we get more because it is, it is the fuel in which we run. And we're going to try to do it. You know, we had so much come in all of a sudden that we decided yeah, was, to save it up. It was a big bolus yeah. of it. 
I would like to do it, you know, it, uh, a little bit on each episode to have a, you know, as we've mail, done in the past, a mailbag segment, yeah, as we've done in the past. So we'll probably do that. And, but if we get a big bunch of it again, we might do another all feedback show. Um, really quickly though, this uh, Kentucky clerk, did you want to talk about this at all? The best thing that I read about this was a tweet from Anthony Christ. <laughs> yeah. The, so this is the, here's our value add. If you're not following Anthony Christ on Twitter, I don't want, I don't even want to know you. And he says, I don't have the tweet in front of me. Basically, it's it's impossible for a um, a state actor to engage in civil disobedience <laughs> in the performance of his or responsibilities. And like I expanded that just to say that like when a state actor ignores the law and does what he or she wants, that's not civil disobedience. No, that's tyranny. It, at least it's a different thing. It's either it's either tyranny, it's revolution or it's sabotage. And that kind of, it depends on the context, right? It depends right. on whether other people know that you're ignoring the law. If they don't, you're doing it secretly to disrupt things. That's kind of sabotage. sabotage. If you're doing it openly, but without the power to change everything, it's more like revolution. Like you're fighting against, you know, in this case, the governor and you're doing it openly. Right. Um, uh, it's if, if you do have the power just to do whatever you want and it will just happen, that's tyranny. Right. So that's that's what it means. And I'm not even saying that those are never justifiable. True. You that Right. If the order is um, to annihilate people or to violate their rights in a very serious way or to do like, – it may well be that, that morality compels you perhaps even secretly to disrupt the government from within. Right. But you have to recognize you're not being Martin Luther King from the Birmingham jail when you do that, right? No. You are You are a saboteur right. or you are uh, an anarchist, a, revolution, uh, a revolutionary, uh, whereas civil disobedience is – in the face of official power, you refuse to submit. You refuse to comply with the law. And maybe further, we won't go all the way into this. Right. You you willingly submit to the punishment of the state as a kind of protest, right? And that's, it's simply impossible for a state actor to do that in, in, the, in the performance of his or her actions, official actions. And that, yeah. was, that was, I think that's an expanded version of Anthony's very succinct and really cool point. So and, follow Anthony Christ on Twitter. Yeah. All right. Anything else? And Christ is spelled K-R-E-I-S. Friend of the show. Yeah. Guest of the show. One of the best friends of the show. He's great. One of our BFFs. Should we have oral argument BFFs? <laughs> Maybe Should we? We already do. We do. We really do. We're, All right. We're fortunate in that. Thank you so much, everybody, for your feedback. Please send in more. We've got a great show lined up next week and in future weeks. It's going to be it's going to be awesome. Tell other people about the show. Let's keep this. Let's keep this thing going. If we can build our listener base even more. Then, you know, I think we're just going to go on tour. Yeah. I think we're going to go on tour. Like John hang out. Yeah, exactly. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Oh. Yeah, we got to get Hodgman on the show. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I would live through it. <laughs> I think I would die of bliss. Uh, and uh, next time, too, we should share our information about our upcoming live appearance. We will be doing yeah, the first true. of such things uh, fairly soon in so Atlanta. True. Yep. Uh, I say the first because I think we're going to do a lot more. Yeah. Next, you know, eventually, eventually we might break all the way through and be able to, uh, and be able to appear in North Dakota. <laughs> One day, a man can dream. 